Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. You know, resisting nature is difficult. If you think about it, you could see that resisting nature is difficult in the expense and the difficulty that's involved in maintaining the barrier islands around the coast of this country. There are barrier islands up and down the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast of the United States. They're formed when waves deposit sand just offshore over time. But here's the thing. What the tides and the winds bring, the tides and the winds can take away. And barrier islands are are just like that. When the tides and the winds change, barrier islands change. I know a little bit about this because I grew up in the state of Florida going to New Smyrna Beach the whole time I was growing up. And the beachfront for New Smyrna is actually on a barrier island. And every time a hurricane or tropical storm comes by, the wind and the waves rip away the coast, the shoreline. They take away tons and tons of beach and sand, sometimes wiping away houses and buildings. And so after the storm is over, someone has to come along and and dredge up sand offshore and dump it back on the dunes and back on the beaches to reinforce the shoreline until the next hurricane or tropical storm comes along and the whole process starts again. Why? Because resisting nature is really difficult. So let me ask you a question today. If resisting nature is difficult, then why would we ever resist God who created nature? If it's difficult and expensive to resist the tides, then why would we ever resist the one who spoke and created the waters. If resisting the wind is difficult, then why would we resist the one who created the very sky? But think about it. People resist God all the time. Since the beginning of history, people have said no to God and created gods instead in their own image. People all the time are declaring themselves king of their lives instead of bowing before the king of kings. And even today, there are nations that try to close their their physical borders and their virtual spaces to the good news about Jesus. And even in our own society, there are places where it's not okay to talk about God. People resist God all the time. We ourselves, in many ways, resist God. You see, God is the one who has the right to tell us what our beliefs and our behaviors should be. God is the one who gets to tell us what to think and what to do. And here's the interesting thing. Sometimes we say yes to God, but sometimes we say no to God. 
And if it's difficult to resist the winds and the waves, then do we really want to resist God who made the wind and the waves? In the New Testament, it turns out that Herod violently resisted Jesus. To understand what I'm talking about, we have to go back to the fact that early in Matthew chapter 2, wise men saw a star lit in the sky announcing the birth of a king. And so they followed that star, journeying to the city of Jerusalem, looking for that new king. They came before Herod, who was the king at the time, and asked, where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? Herod consulted with his advisors and told him that the king would probably have been born in Bethlehem, and Herod sent the wise men off to find that king, to worship him and come back and tell Herod. But you see, Herod had a plan. Herod didn't plan to go and worship that king. Herod planned to go and eliminate that new and rival king. But The wise men received a message from God warning them not to go back to Herod the king and tell him what had happened and what they had found, but to instead go back to their home by a different way, which they did. But there is more because next, Joseph, Mary's husband, the the adoptive father of Jesus, received a message from God through a dream in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, where we read, now, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took the child, Jesus, and his mother, Mary, by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So Joseph had a dream and he received a message from God that Herod was seeking to destroy the child and that Joseph should flee with Mary and Jesus as quickly as he possibly could. And so the text indicates that right then and there, in the middle of the night, Joseph obeyed the dream. He got up, he grabbed everything that he could and prepared for the journey. But understand, that meant leaving everything behind because the Bible indicates that Mary and Joseph had made a home in Bethlehem. They owned a house. They were staying in a house. Joseph probably had a job. And so they got up, they left everything behind, had no opportunity to say goodbye to anyone. They left it all. They became refugees. And they fled as quickly as they could for the Egyptian frontier and for safety from Herod. Why? Because Herod realized he had been double-crossed. He was furious and in a rage, as we read in verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted 
because they are no more. So Herod, as it turns out, was always paranoid that someone was going to try to replace him. And so Herod determined that he was going to eliminate this new potential rival. He sent representatives, soldiers, to the town of Bethlehem with orders that they were to kill all the children who were two years old or under in and around Bethlehem. The figure of two years old was chosen by Herod because it matched the time when the wise men indicated that the star had appeared in the sky two years previously. This would certainly get rid of the rival. And in this, Herod thought that he was fighting against a potential rival. But in reality, Herod was resisting God himself. What does it look like when, when people resist God? What does it look like to resist God for people? It looks like people saying no to God. Sometimes people say no to even thinking about God and instead consume their lives with absolutely everything else that will distract them. Sometimes people say no to believing, to putting faith in God, and instead believe in themselves and put faith in the people around them instead. Frequently, people say no to obeying God and instead do whatever seems right to them. And, and the truth of the matter is, as shocking as it may be to you to think about it, we resist God in some of those same ways. We feel God tugging at our hearts, drawing us closer to him. We recognize it because the Holy Spirit is in us. But we say no, and we keep our distance. We hear God speaking to us, revealing his will and his way to us. It's almost as if we stick our fingers in our ears and pretend that we're not hearing the voice of God. We sense and we understand what God's will is, what he wants from us and for us. And we do what the Bible calls hardening our hearts. And I know what this is like, and you do too. Because I've, I've said no to God. I've resisted God in my life. And I'm almost certain that you have resisted God in your own life as well. We do. At times, we resist God. And Herod's not alone in resisting God. But you see, in the case of Herod, God took decisive action. And that decisive action is so important God took decisive action by speaking. As you look at Matthew chapters 1 and 2, you'll see and hear God speaking time after time. Back in Matthew chapter 1, God spoke in a dream to Joseph, telling Joseph that the child that Mary had conceived was of God and that he should wed Mary and raise the child. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, God spoke to the wise men through a star lit in the sky and through a dream that warned them not to return to Herod. Right here at the end of Matthew chapter 2, we read once again that God has spoken to Joseph in a dream, telling him to get up and to 
flee to Egypt. And as we continue into verses 19 through 23, we're going to find God speaking two times again through dreams. And this teaches us something important about what's going on here. As shocking as it may seem, because it's a painful chapter in the Bible, everything that happened, happened by God's initiative. You see, Herod thought he was the one taking charge and acting. But it turns out that God is the one who's taking charge and acting. God took decisive action as well by fulfilling prophecy. Now, we have seen multiple prophecies already fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1 and in the early verses of chapter 2, but right here in the verses that we have read together so far today, we've seen two times again that prophecy was fulfilled. Once we read that in Jesus going to and living in Egypt for a time and then coming back to Judea later, we have a prophecy from the Old Testament fulfilled that said that God would call his son out of Egypt. And in the suffering caused by Herod's grief, by his, his, by his, his, his violence, it's actually prophesied in the book of Jeremiah that the birth of Messiah would be accompanied by lamentation, weeping, and grief as well. And we learn in the fact that God is fulfilling these prophecies, something important again about God, that everything happened according to God's plan. You see, Herod actually thinks that he's thwarting God's plan. But even Herod's resistance to God's plan is part of God's plan. Everything happened according to God's plan. We also see that God is taking decisive action because of his great love for his people. Matthew quotes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that reads, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, this is the beginning of Hosea chapter 11, and Matthew quotes just a fragment of it, out of Egypt, I called my son. But there's more in Hosea chapter 11. In Hosea chapter 11, God says clearly, I, I called my people Israel like a son out of Egypt. And he says, my people came to me, but then my people consistently chose to disobey me. And in Hosea 11, God says, there is going to be discipline because you've disobeyed me. But the real thrust of Hosea 11 is to say that while I may discipline my people, my steadfast love means that they will always be my people. I will always love them. And no one can separate my people from my great love. And we're learning something critically important about God as we see this prophecy applied to Jesus. We find that everything happened in this episode because of God's great love for his people. Jesus is reliving Israel's entire experience here in the Exodus to remind us that God's love for his people is something that is never going to end. Nothing can separate us from God's great love in Jesus Christ. And God took decisive action in Matthew chapter 2 as well 
in order to save his people. And we get it as we unpack what Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15, where we read, thus says the Lord, and this is what Matthew quoted, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, to what is Matthew referring? This is a chapter of the prophet Jeremiah that deals with the Babylonian exile, the, the difficulty that the people of Judah faced, the conquest and their eventual captivity in Babylon. Rachel is one of the matriarchs, one of the mothers of the nation of Israel. And Jeremiah says, after all of the loss of the Babylonian invasion of the exile, our mother, the mother of the nation, Rachel, is weeping for all of the children that she's lost. But the focus of Jeremiah 31, again, is not on the loss. But in Jeremiah 31, God goes on to say, yes, my people have lost, but I'm with my people. And I will gather my people together. And I will restore my people. And in Matthew chapter 2, we read again that around the birth and the growing up of Jesus, there was once again weeping. There was tragedy. But in the midst of the tragedy, we find that God is gathering his people together and he is saving them. And so we learn something else. We learn that everything in these two chapters happened because God was saving his people. In Jesus, God is gathering us together, forgiving us of our sin and restoring us to a right relationship with him. And so in the end of Matthew chapter 2, we recognize that God was taking decisive action in history. But as we continue to think about what we've read, we realize that at the same time, God has proven that Jesus is the true king. God proved that Jesus is the true king. And we find that as we continue into verses 19 through 23, where we read, but when Herod died, frankly, one of the most beautiful verses in this entire chapter, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. See, God is appearing once again. And he says, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he, that is Joseph, heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called Nazarene. Now, Herod professed to be the true king, the right king, but he was not a true king. He was a false king. He was a tyrant. And here's the thing that we know about tyrants in history. Tyrants come and tyrants Go. Herod was indeed a tyrant. He was consumed with jealousy and fear of any rival. He was a violent man. Herod had 10 wives, and his favorite wife he had executed because she was argumentative. He had two sons by her, 
And he put them in a castle prison and then had them executed because he was worried that they might someday plot against him. Herod was paranoid and he was violent. But in 4 BC, Herod died. And we are reminded in Herod's death that tyrants come and tyrants go. It doesn't make them the true and right king. Instead, by their temporary nature, we realize that Jesus is the one who is the true and the right king. And even in these verses, we are reminded in a subtle way again that Jesus was the true king. You see, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, we're given this strange prophecy. Matthew says it's just as was prophesied that, that Messiah would be called a Nazarene. He was born, he was raised in Nazareth, therefore he was a Nazarene. And Matthew says that fulfills an Old Testament prophecy. The only thing is that there is no prophecy in the Old Testament indicating that Messiah would be from Nazareth, a Nazarene. What then did Matthew mean by that? Well, scholars debate what Matthew meant by it. But one of the theories that makes the most sense to me is built on a commonly recurring prophecy in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the coming king. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, we are told that the Messiah would come from the house and the line of King David. He would be a son of David. But we are told in the Old Testament that the house of David would be reduced to what looked like a stump. It would look as if the house of David were dead with no possibility for the future. But from that stump would come a branch, something new, a shoot of new growth that would symbolize a new, a better, a right, and a lasting king, a son of David but better. We read that kind of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where we read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, that is the father of King David, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, a branch. Repeatedly in the Old Testament, Messiah is called a branch. And in Hebrew, the word for branch is nezer. There will be a nezer, over and over again, we are told that Messiah will be a branch. He will be a nezer, ha-nezer, from the house of David. It's a word play that Matthew is using, saying that this Nazarene is ha-nezer, that we have been promised the Messiah. And if that is true, then Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 opens, saying, this is a genealogy of Jesus the Christ. He is the son of David. And Matthew chapter 2 closes, saying, look, here he is. He grew up in Nazareth. This is Jesus the Christ. He is the son of David. He is the true and the right king. A note that Matthew chapters 1 and 2 hits over and over again. Jesus was born king. 
And Jesus is the true and right king. He is the son of God who rules. He reigns over the kingdom of God, which has come into history. Jesus is king because he died and rose again. Jesus is king because he has overcome sin and death and evil. Jesus is the true and the right king. And Jesus himself makes this point repeatedly. For instance, the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 24, and 25. This is what Jesus means when he's talking. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is saying, I am in charge, and there are going to be times at which my will and your will conflict, and when my will and your will conflict, you will choose my will every time, even if that choice is difficult and costly for you. Why? Because Jesus is the true king. Jesus was and is the true king, and he is the true and coming king. Jesus is going to return, and when he does, it will be obvious and apparent that Jesus is and reigns as king, because when Jesus comes again in the future, he's coming to judge the world and to make everything that is wrong in the world right. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 16 to tell us this. In verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus was and is and always shall be the true king. So instead of resisting Jesus, the true king, Let's receive him. Rodney Stark resisted the true king for a long time. You've probably never heard of Rodney Stark. He grew up hearing about God, but like a lot of kids, he was just much more interested in sports than he ever was in God. He got eventually a PhD in sociology, and after graduating with his PhD in sociology, became a reporter for a local newspaper. And they sent him out to do a story one time about UFO sightings. And he interviewed several people who claimed that they had been abducted by UFOs and taken to the moon and to Mars and to Venus. And he treated their stories with such respect the paper continued to give him difficult and thorny assignments. This led him in his career as a sociologist to begin studying religious experience. He had a particular interest in the conversion experiences of Christians. He began studying how and why people become disciples of Jesus, and he wrote extensively on what conversion looks like. He went on from there to study the contributions that Christianity had made to American culture, how and why Christian faith had shaped the bedrock of this nation. And then he went on and wrote a groundbreaking study on how and why Christianity became the majority empire or majority religion in the Roman Empire. The irony is that in all of it, Rodney Stark was writing about something he didn't understand at all personally. 
He was an agnostic. And yet, he put himself in the place where for decades he heard about how the power of God was at work in people's lives and how the power of God was at work in our world. And for decades, Rodney Stark resisted God in his life until he didn't. Rodney Stark wrote about his experience very briefly. He said that for most of his life, he had no interest in God. He resisted God until one day, God broke through his resistance. And instead, he received saving faith in Jesus. Rodney Stark's experience reminds us But just because we resist God for a season, even for decades, doesn't mean that at some point we cannot receive him. What does it mean to receive King Jesus? Well, to receive somebody means that we stop resisting them. We stop saying no to them. But beyond that, to receive something means that we are given something, that we get something. But beyond simply being given or getting something, when we receive something, we have it, we hold it, we we hold on to it, we cling to it. And when we receive something, we stop resisting it, we are given it, we, we, we have it, we hold it, and it becomes ours. And that applies to what God has done for us in Jesus. We receive in Jesus everything that he offers us, forgiveness, adoption as sons and daughters of his, the Holy Spirit, new purpose, new life, eternal life that begins now. What we receive is salvation when we receive Jesus, who is our Savior. But when we receive Jesus, we don't just get everything that he does. We get everything that he is. And that means receiving Jesus, who is the true and right King. So as we think about the coming of a new year, are we ready to receive King Jesus? To receive King Jesus means that we stop resisting him, stop pushing him away. Instead, we get, we have, we hold, we cling to Jesus. To receive Jesus means that we obey him. We accept that he is in charge. And we declare that Jesus is our King of kings and Lord of lords now and forever.
thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.